Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. Welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris Calzi. I'm the pastor here, and um, we're so thrilled to see you here today as we kick off our series, Better. Um, you probably could connect with one of those characters that you just witnessed, um, or maybe you could connect with all of them at certain moments of your life. The reality is, is that as we start into a new year, um, we all have grand dreams and hopes. It's one of those natural resets in our calendar where we think, oh, okay, this year is going to be better. And we say that. We say this relationship's going to be better. This, this job is going to be better. This, my health is going to be better. And that we said that at the start of 2019. Um, we said that at the start of 2018, 17, and 16. It appears to be a pattern for us. And what happens is we get started, and somewhere along the way, something derails us, and we end up in a ditch. And uh, we had an idea. We had a goal. We had a destination in mind, but something occurred along the way. In fact, Last weekend, I saw a news story that I thought kind of captured, for many of us, what 2020 looks like or what any New Year journey looks like. There, A family from Burlington was headed up New Hampshire to go skiing. They had put in their GPS coordinates, and they were headed their way uh, to a ski resort up in New Hampshire's mountains. And um, as they approached a road, the GPS told them to turn left on the Jefferson Notch Road. And as they turned left, it was a little snowy, and two and a Two, and a, two miles in, it's really snowy, and the road's shrinking. And about two and a half miles in, they realize this is not a road. This is a snowmobile trail. And so they go to try to turn around, and in the process of turning around, they get stuck in a ditch. The cell, cell service doesn't work, but fortunately for this family, they had bought a new car, and it had some kind of strange, like, remote pinging system that could uh, alert and call for roadside assistance. About three to four hours later, the tow company was finally able to find them because they were two and a half miles off the road. And, and when they finally found them, they had to bring in special equipment because no tow truck could just get back to where they were. They were on a snowmobile trail. And they had to use ATVs to transport the family members that were in the car to the, to the road to kind of get them to warm up because they'd been sitting in this car for seven hours um, by the end of the whole ordeal. And as I saw that news story, I was like, that, that's so many of us every year on the New Year's journey. We have an idea, we have a destination, we have a goal, and it's going to be better. We even have a plan. We have steps. We have the, the next turn, the take. But somewhere along the way, shortly in, we fall into a ditch, and we end up being stuck. And we say, well, I'll have to wait till next year to kind of get back into that loop. And today what I want to do is we kick off this better series, which I really am excited about, which I think is going to be really practical and really helpful for you and I as we journey towards a better 2020. I want to look at today one of the ditches that we fall into that oftentimes we're not even aware is there. And it's a ditch that that we end up sliding into and get stuck and 2020 becomes like 2019, becomes like 2018 and your marriage is still in the same place it was a year ago and your health is still in the same place and your finances are still in the same place. And fortunately for us, there was one of the most famous Christian authors, writers, 
one of the most brilliant thinkers in Christian history who's responsible for writing a majority of the Christian scriptures that are found in what we call the Bible, um, spent some time unpacking this for us. And, and in the midst of dialoguing and, and addressing this letter to a church that we're about to read, he ends up giving us some insight to what that ditch is that oftentimes leaves us feeling stuck in our journey towards a better new year and a better you and me. Um, the letter is kind of historically been called Philippians. It's called Philippians because Paul, who's the writer of it, writes a letter to the church in a town called Philippi. Philippi was kind of a unique town for those um, history buffs. I would encourage you to look into it. It had unique status in the Roman Empire at its time, which created a unique culture within Philippi. But Philippi was in the region of Macedonia, which was um, in Europe. Christianity began in Jerusalem in the Middle East on the Asian continent. And as it transitioned, um, Paul was responsible for taking the message of Christianity beyond just that small scope of the Middle East. And the first town that he arrives to that's outside of the Asian continent is Philippi. Philippi is forever a special community for him because it's the place where the first Christian on the European continent happens. Um, uh, this woman that Paul meets, that um, her and her entire family end up accepting this message of hope that Paul has that we now call Christianity. Um, not only does that happen, he ends up finding himself in prison in Philippi because of some issues that come up because of the faith that he has. And lo and behold, in the midst of being thrown in prison, God uses that to start the first church in Europe. And so I know for many of us, when we think of European churches, we have this idea of grand cathedrals and massive structures, but the first European church in church history was in Philippi. And so this was a special church for him. This was Paul's first first break beyond um, Asia and the Middle East. And it was also a church that never had any major issues. Um, in some ways, Paul was parenting churches. And like kids, you have kids who um, get in the stuff, who are constantly, you know, if you turn away from them, they're either breaking a crime or about to break something. You have those kind of kids. And then you have other kids who just always seem to be, you know, doing what they think they're doing. And, and then you have somewhere in the middle. My mom this weekend was laughing at me because she'd realized into adulthood, she was like, you were so sweet. But then I realized that you were also really sneaky, that all the time I thought you were good, you were, you were just sneaky. And then there was my, uh, my, the middle brother. She was like, he just fought all the time. I knew he was always up to something, but I, I just never believed you were. She was like, you were so sneaky. And I'm like, yeah, I just didn't believe in arguing with you. I just did whatever I wanted to and didn't discuss it with you beforehand. That just saved us a whole lot of energy, right? And, and in a lot of ways, Paul leading, starting these churches was a lot like parenting. Philippi was that church. The church that grows in Philippi was the church that always listened. They always obeyed. They did exactly what they, they ate their broccoli. They went to bed. They didn't stay up. They didn't disobey. And so where many of the New Testament letters are written by Paul or written by other uh, original followers of Jesus um, to address an issue or struggle or theological confusion, Paul writes the book of Philippians to them because he's just genuinely overjoyed. It's a thank you letter. You see, Paul fast forward some years and now Paul's in prison in Rome. And in the ancient kind of prison structure, you it was not 
own the prison or the government to provide you food, water, clothing, or anything. Your basic necessities were your responsibility. So it depend, you depended on friends, uh, family members, or some type of generosity from some supporters or patrons that you may have had in the community where you're locked up. And so here's Paul, thousands of miles from where he grew up in a Roman prison, and he has all the financial weight and responsibility of taking care of himself on him without any of the support structure. And one day, out of nowhere, this group from Philippi sends a messenger with some financial support for him. And their money paves the way for him to eat, paves the way for him to have a place to stay. It takes care of him. And, and he's so overjoyed by their generosity that he writes them a letter that we now call the letter or the book of Philippians. It's the most intimate letter that Paul writes. It's the most personal letter that Paul writes. Over 100 times in the course of a very short letter, he uses the word I or me, which may not mean a lot for most of us, but when you read Paul's letters, one of the things that you notice very quickly about Paul is Paul did not talk about himself a lot in most of his letters. It's the most intimate biographical, biological picture of Paul written by Paul that we have. Because he's so overjoyed, he's just sharing his life, he's sharing his thoughts, he's sharing his inspiration while sitting in this prison, being able to live a little longer because they've provided. And towards the second half of the letter, he, he moves to this period where he starts to write about where he came from and where he's been and all the credentials that he had and one of the, the things that's begun to happen to him. In the letter that he writes, this section that I want to just drill into, it's, you would have to realize it would have been a little bit shocking for the audience when they read it. Because Paul writes this, not that I've already obtained all of this, all of this being a throwback to verses 1 through 8 in chapter 3, where he's talking about perfection. Or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press home to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to take an hold of it. Now you have to realize people reading this letter, getting this from Paul, would have, if there was any Christian on planet earth who had it together, if there was any Christian on planet earth who had checked all the boxes, done all the things, and was perfect, it would have been Paul. And yet here's Paul in this very intimate moment just saying, guys, I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived. I don't have and am not all that I know I'm supposed to be yet. I, I know there's more to faith that I haven't experienced. I know that there's more right out there, and I haven't gotten there. Which, on the surface, would have been a little like, wait, but you're Paul. Like, Paul, you're Paul. You can't say that, well, if he hasn't done it, then I guess it's okay for all of us to be able to be honest and say, we're not there yet either. And yet, in the midst of Paul confessing he's not there yet, he, he gives us this, I think, inspiration. He's like, look, I have a resolution. It's just not yet reality. And so here's Paul living in a place that in so many ways transfers to where some of us are right now in our lives at the beginning of this year, thinking about our relationships, thinking about our finances, thinking about our health, thinking about our parenting, thinking about our job, our professional life. And so many of those different arenas, here's Paul thinking about the same thing you are as a high school or a college student, imagining where you want to be and seeing the gap of where you are. 
And it's Paul's next sentence that shines this incredible amount of brilliance and guidance for us that I want to press into. Paul says, but one thing I do. He's like, all right, here's the thing. I haven't gotten there, but there's one thing that I'm doing to get there. And then he does a little bit of grammar on us. He says, one thing I do, colon, forgetting what is behind and stringing towards what is ahead, comma, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So he says, here's the one thing I'm doing. I press on. That's what I'm doing. But fortunately for us, it's not just the pressing on, the what he's doing. It's the how that he puts in these little clauses right before that actually gives us the insight. It actually highlights the ditch that I think many of us fall into when we're trying to journey towards a better you and me. The, the clause is this. He says that I forget what is behind and I strain towards what's ahead. There's so much richness in what Paul said. Paul uses words here that are really unique, that are full of imagery, that have a lot of emotion and energy attached to them. And this first thing that he shows us, he's like, in order to do this one thing, there are two things that you have to do. You have to forget what's behind, and you have to strain towards what's ahead. But the challenge is, remember, Paul's writing this in the language of his day. He's not writing this in English. And so what happens is the manuscripts that we have from just a few decades when Paul writes this letter are in a different language than the English that I'm reading it, which presents a little bit of challenges. Because for anyone who's bilingual, you know that it can be somewhat challenging sometimes to take a word from one language and bring it fully into another language and still convey all of the meaning and the nuances. For example, in the New Testament, which was primarily written in the Greek language of the day, um, the Greeks had four different words for the word love. We have one word for the word love. You tell your spouse or your children or your family members, love, I love you, in the same sentence or the next sentence, you may also say you love tacos. Now, it, on the surface, are you saying you love tacos with the equal passion that you love your family members? For me, yes, the answer is clearly yes. But for you, it's probably not. And that's one of the challenges. And so... One of the beauties of the Greek language is that there are certain elements and aspects where they tease out and they have nuance to them. They can be lost in the English. And this is one of those situations. This, this section here is loaded with nuance that helps us in our process. He says, I forget what is behind. And you read that and you're like, okay, is this some kind of weird like men in black thing where you like, Paul, how do you forget what's behind? That's not possible. It's not possible to forget what you said to that person or what they said to you. It's not possible to forget that disappointment that you feel like came out of nowhere and completely upended your life. So unless Paul has some kind of memory eraser, there must be more to this word than just forgetting what is behind. Because many of us, if we could take a pill to forget, we would. But the reality is you can't. It amazes me, even as 
I've lived and decades have gone by how one thought can trigger a moment, a smell, an experience from decades ago. It's like you're transported in a time machine and you're taken back instantly. So what is Paul talking about when he says forgetting? The word here has a nuance that's more neglect. It's more overlooked. It's probably the, the most helpful part of the way you could look at this word is the word escape. That I escape from what's behind. Because many of us, what is holding us back in 2020 is not what is in 2020. It's in 2019. It's in 2015. It's in 2010. It's from high school. It's that relationship that you watch dissolve in slow motion. That oftentimes what's holding us back in this year didn't happen this year. It happened in another year. Or it's been slowly growing over years or decades. And so when he's saying escape, he's he's pointing out to us that one of the biggest hindrances to us moving forward is getting past our past and what's behind us. See, the past is not behind you. The past is in you. And that reality is present with us every moment of our present. And it's constantly hindering us in the future. And so we start out with these resolutions. We start out with this joy, this anticipation of this year is going to be better. I'm going to do it. And just like every one of those people, you get to the gym and you're like, I sweat a lot when I try to do this. I used to go to this gym that had three flights of stairs to get to the treadmill. And I would oftentimes count the walking up the stairs at the gym as my workout. I'd be like, "Woo, okay. I'm pretty sure that's got to be enough right there because I'm sweating and breathing hard and I haven't even made it there. I am winning right now. Right? I mean, that we, we start off with all of this, like, I'm going to eat healthy. I'm going to spend less. I'm going to have more quality time with my kids. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig in. I'm going to get to work early. I'm going to get that promotion. I'm going to save more. And then four, five, six days in, Patriots lose, and you find yourself sliding back into what you started off in to find that comfort. And it's really easy to say it's the Patriots' fault. And it is like 25%. But 75% of it is still on you. And Paul's saying, look, if we're going to move forward, we've got to let go of what's behind us. Actually, in, um, there's, it's somewhat anecdotal, but I've actually seen video of this. There's uh, an, a visual. There's a way you catch a monkey that I think illustrates what Paul is trying to illustrate for us. So you can't catch a monkey, every type of species of monkey this way, but you can catch certain monkeys this way, and it's called a monkey trap. I've seen the monkey trap used in different ways. I've heard people talk about it using coconuts. I've seen uh, monkey traps that are um, inside of termite mounds, because if you've ever seen a termite mound, especially in um, certain ports of Africa, termite mounds are magnificent little mini mountain structures, and so they're really big. And so the way that you would trap a monkey in a monkey trap is you, you end up putting something that's enticing for the monkey, inside of the hole. The monkey reaches its hand in to grab it, and then when it tries to pull its hand out, it can't. Because the object in the hole is bigger than the hole, 
And now, for many of us, we're like, how is that a trap? Just let go. Well, what happens is the monkey gets so focused and so fixated on the item inside the trap, or it starts to panic because its handful stuck, that it actually can't let go of the, can't let go of the fruit. It keeps holding on. And it's panicking, and it's pulling, and it's straining, and it's fighting. And all along, they don't even notice the hunter coming up behind them to be able to grab hold of them. And this is called a monkey trap. Because ultimately, what traps the monkey is not you. It's the monkey itself. It's holding on to something that, in reality, is actually holding on to them. And it gets them. And I think this is... Sort of what Paul's trying to allude to. That oftentimes for us to move forward, for us to experience something better, that we have to first let it go if we want to see better grow. That we've got to let go of something that's holding us back from being able to move forward. Which I think begs the question, right? Here's the question for you. What are you holding on to that in reality is holding you back? What are you holding on to? Because you think you're holding it. But in reality, it's actually holding you. Now, I can't answer that question for you. But I think that's a question worth asking. Because many of us, what derails us in our journey towards better, what, what hinders us in, in preventing us from seeing better grow, is we won't let something go. That could be something as simple as regrets, disappointments that happened last year or some years before that you still nurse, that you still ruminate on, you still think about, you still replay in the mind what they said to you and how angry it makes you. It could be that moment whether you stepped up to a plate or you stepped into the boardroom and that presentation completely failed and you felt like the entire world saw it and you just walked away feeling crushed by it and you just nurse that and you live in that. And that regret and that disappointment continues to hold you back. Or maybe for some of us that what we're holding on to is some unforgiveness. There are some people that have done things to you that you haven't let go of yet. There are some things that they did or said that were wrong. And the tragedy is that while they did something wrong to you, their life moved on and yours hasn't. Because you still hold on to it you still grab hold of it. And it's holding you back. And it's hindering you from experiencing something. For some of you, let's get real kind of in your life busy. Maybe for some of us, what's keeping us shackled is some friends that we have in our life. They're what's holding us back. Oh, we think we're good, but in reality, we we don't get very far in the journey. Because... We're chained to something. And that maybe it's some friends that you have that if you were to pay attention, if you were to look, you would notice that, you know what, the quality of my life actually drops every time I get around them. The quality of my decision-making drops when I, ever, when I get around them. I don't know about you, but there are certain people in my life, if I knew today I would get around them, I know that I would probably make a stupid choice. Because there's just something in the water, there's something in the conversation. Stupidity happens when we gather. I don't know if that happens for some of you, but it usually happens when, hey, I have an idea. 
What if we? And then it just starts the general decline from there. Or maybe it's them popping open a bottle and throwing it to you. I don't know. Maybe for some of you, it's a romantic relationship that you've been holding on to. And the reason you're holding on to it not, is not because that relationship is that good. It's because that you're so afraid of being alone that you're willing to hold on to something destructive and damaging just so that you don't have to feel alone. Now, you think you're in that relationship, but you're, you're holding on to that relationship because it's really holding on to you because you're so afraid of what would happen if you didn't have someone in your life. You see, this thing is insidious because it can be a lot of different things. For some of us who are married, it could be the destructive habits that we've fallen into over years or maybe even decades. It's the way we respond to our spouse that's just a little bit of a paper cut. But, you know, if you, enough paper cuts, you bleed to death. And it's just those little subtle things, but we hold on to them. And it's what holds us back. Every year we say, oh, oh, this is the year we're going to have a better marriage. And then, whoa, back in the same pad. They said what they said, and then you say what you say, and then they say what they say, and then next thing you know, you're not talking. And the idea of a better relationship, a better marriage in 2020 is out the door. It could be something you're watching. It could be something you're physically holding like your smartphone. But maybe what's holding you back is what you hold on to frequently. Now, what I love about smartphones, if you really want to get introspective on this, is a couple clicks, and all of a sudden, it opens up for you. See, your smartphone tracks what you're doing. And with a couple clicks, your smartphone will tell you how many hours you spent on that phone that day or that week. It'll tell you what you were doing. You probably shouldn't let your boss see it because it might not help you. You're like, oh, I've been on, you know, I've been working all day. And then you click and it's like, you know, gym breaker and, you know, Tinder. And it's like all this other stuff. And then email three minutes. You know, but Facebook three hours. Hey, but to, to look in, because oftentimes we don't even want to acknowledge what we're holding on to. Because in our minds, we're holding on to it. It's not holding us. But it can be quite terrifying to open up your smartphone and realize, oh, my goodness, this week I spent 11 hours on social media. Wait a second. I spent 11 hours looking at other people live their life, and I robbed 11 hours from my life. And you may think I'm exaggerating. I'd click on your settings, and I would dig into it. Because here's the beauty. There's a genius when you start to realize what's holding you back and you let go is it starts to free up things in your life. Let's just say that what you're holding on to takes three hours of your week. Well, I'm going to give you two weeks vacation. Congratulations from the get-go. So now we have 50 weeks with three hours per week that multiplies into 150 hours a week. I mean, 150 hours over the course of the year. The average American is awake, 100, is, is awake uh, 16 hours a day, but we're going to make the math really easy. So I'm essentially, by you letting go, of that three-hour-a-week thing, you reclaim 10 days this year. What could you see in your relationships? What could you see personally? What could you see in your faith? What could you see in your dynamics with your children if you had 10 extra days just handed to you to be completely solely focused on it? Maybe you're not a three-hour. Maybe it's only 90 minutes. 
So it's five days that you get given. And the beauty of our sort of strange calendar is the fact that this is a leap year. So congratulations, you get six this year. Because February's weird, and it's got 29 days this year. So now you've had six days handed to you with nothing but soul focused on that. And where this thing gets so personal is that sometimes what can hold us back are good things. There are certain things I'm not doing in this season of my life because of this season in my life. Things that are good things, but that I recognize in this season of my life with a soon-to-be five-month-old and an eight-year-old that I frankly don't want to give time to because this time is so limited and so narrow that I'll never get this time back. And, and so it's possible. There are good things that you're holding on to that's actually holding you back. And that for the sake of marital bliss, I won't say some of those things out loud because I don't want to give your significant other weapons to use against you, but you know what they are without me having to say them. Because in the end, when we start to, to look and to reflect and to actually inspect what's holding us, we realize that oftentimes what we're holding on to is actually holding us back. And that Paul points this out to us, but in an even bigger context that I think is helpful is remember he's doing this in the source, in the, in the context of community. He's writing a letter to someone. Because this is, it's actually really helpful to have people around you who you can ask the question if you're not sure because maybe you don't know what's holding you back. Well, to be able to ask someone this question, hey, what do you see that I'm holding on to that's holding me back? Or what do you see me holding on to that's holding us back? Now, maybe you're like, well, they, they don't see it. That's a pointless question. I know they see it. Just because they're not saying it doesn't mean they don't see it. It's possible they're not saying it because they recognize from past experience that if they say something, then they're going to have to argue with you or listen to your defensiveness or listen to your justifications or some presentation of, no, look, I'm the one holding on to this thing and I can let go anytime I want. It's not holding on to me. I'm in control. And they just got tired of arguing with you. They got tired of fighting with you. And so they don't say anything. They don't say anything about how you spend the money. They don't say anything about how you're spending your time because they just don't want to deal with what happens every single time. They say something. And some of us may think we're hiding it really well. And, and I just want to tell you, you're not. Everyone sees it. And and the recognition that there are people in your life who currently see what you're holding on to that's holding you back actually can be a freeing and liberating thing if you're willing to ask the question, what am I holding on to that's holding me back or what am I holding on to that's holding us back? At, the, at Encounter Church, we're passionate about this concept of being better together. I do believe that when, we, when there is a me that has a we around them that's committed to the same things, we are better for it, that I am better for it. One of the things that we've been beta testing that I'm really excited about that we're doing at the end of this month called, and on January 31st is this idea called soul food. And soul food is this idea of really good food. For anyone who's ever had soul food, 
you know what that means. But it also is this idea of like food for the soul conversationally. That when this the soul food, when we tested it out, because we're like, you know, we're kind of inventing this thing. We're like, how do we create intentional time where we can come together and experience something that's rich? Not just good food, but good conversation too. And so it's, it's a really good meal. And it's really good conversation. It's fun. It's gauging. It's relaxed. Even if you're not sure, you're not stuck in someone's house. We, we, we host it here. And it's just an evening where you walk away saying, I like these people. I, I had fun tonight. Because there's something about being around other people that helps you notice what you're holding on to that's holding you back. And so uh, we've already begin to open up sign up. So if you're interested in learning more about soul food or even want to sign up for it, you'll see it in our email. Um, You'll also, it's in the app already today where you can click on the starting point icon and go into soul food sign up. But it it may be an option. It may be the, the way that you step in and move towards something better. But Paul doesn't just stop with that. He gives us one last little piece that I think is the most powerful. He says, look, we need to escape this and then he says we need to press on, we need to, to strain hold. He, a different way to kind of alliterate would be we have to extend ourselves towards what we want. So we let go so that we can let better grow. And we press towards that. We move towards that. If this is about the what, buried in the nuance of this word is the why. That we let go of something because of what we know will come into our life that's better. So we can let go of some of the habits in our life because what we know in letting go of those habits, what we know of letting go of those ways that we've gotten current comfort or affirmation or um, the ways that we've been able to numb our pain, that when we let go of that, what can start to happen is life begins to flow back into us, relationships or health or financial security, that what we move towards is better than what we've left behind. This why is at the core of us moving forward. And this is embedded in the word that Paul writes when he says that we're to extend, we're to press on. In fact, this final sentence going into verse 14, Paul is using a, a lot of imagery around um, athletic events that would have been common in his day. The word extend, strain, is not just strain, it means an an intense effort for desired outcome or purpose. I'm not just doing it, I'm actually straining towards something that's better. I know my relationship with my kids will be better if I decrease the amount of time I'm spending doing this. So that's why I can let that go for a season is because I know what will grow in my life over here is going to be better than that. And the reason Paul can have that confidence, the reason Paul can call us to let go of the what and, and to, to awaken to a why that we do it in the first place is that Paul has a grander perspective. When you live for a bigger purpose, it opens up a grander perspective to see and to be able to savor and enjoy life. See, for Paul, what was at the core of his faith, what he was writing about here, what Paul understood is that many of us, in fact, all of us, are on a happiness quest. We don't call it that, but that's what guides us. We're, we're just trying to, we want to be happy. 
And he recognizes that the challenge with a happiness quest is that a happiness quest is inherently self-sabotaging. Because you always choose the short term. And the short term in the happiness quest always, always undermines the long term. What do I mean? I mean an Oreo always tastes better than a treadmill. Every single time. Every time. Never, ever not. Ice cream is always better than a stair climber. The smartphone, numb, distract is always better and easier than having the hard conversation. The not spending and buying that thing that you want is always harder than the eventually having money in your checking account. And so what happens? We, we sacrifice our long-term to satisfy our short-term. And this underlying sacrificial, sabotaging act, Paul understood, could on, only be overcome if the long-term picture you had was a grander perspective. And Paul's grander perspective was his faith. And that Jesus was better than anything that he was holding on to. And, th- and I know for some of us that, that we can't connect at that on intellectual or an emotional level. But you have to realize this is what was driving Paul. This was at the core of his motivation. He had something bigger and grander in his life. And what I can tell you as a pastor practically where this fleshes out is that as a pastor you find yourself in two different moments of life with people. You tend to find yourself in the moments when life begins, and you tend to find yourself in the moments when life ends. And what I have seen enough of to know even at the middle part of my journey is that no one, no one, when they're sitting on their deathbed and they reflect, no one talks about what's inside of this. No one has ever looked at me on their deathbed and said, you know what, I I really wish I had worked more. I really wish, I really wish I'd golfed a little bit more. I really wish I'd spent more time on Facebook or Twitter. Man, if I just had one more Instagram post, my life, whoo, it'd have been good. No one talks about those things. No one talks about having one more house. No one talks about having a nicer car. What tends to come up at the end of life is the most important things in life. They're not what's. They're the value around the who's. And it's who's in two different directions. The who this way with what do you think God thinks about me? And the who this way, whether it's friends, family members, spouse, or kids. I'm telling you that at the end of the day, and so what happens is that Paul is trying to save all of us from waiting till that moment because that moment is too late. That moment, you don't get a redo, you just get regret. There is no do over. It's just done. And he's trying to prevent us from having to experience that then by causing us to think about it now where we are here because no one ever, ever regrets holding on to this longer at the end. And Paul understood with the grand perspective of his life why he was living it. He uses this word in in the English, it says heavenward. It's actually an athletic term, some historians believe, because the uh, the it's a new uh, kind of a nuance that means upward. So 
the press on is a race imagery. Um, the word press on is something that you would, if there had been Sports Illustrated back in the day, press on would have been a word that you would have seen in um, a sports article. Upward would have also been a word you would have seen in a sports article. Upward, it was that moment at the end of the chariot race when oftentimes the emperor was standing on the platform and he would call up the winner of the chariot race. And the winner would walk onto the platform with the emperor. And the emperor would award the prize in front of everyone there. The most important person on planet Earth was single-handedly calling you out to acknowledge the good job you've done and to give you the prize. And when Paul thinks about his life and how he's going to live his life, that's the imagery that he puts to this group of people. He's like, I am straining, I am striving for that prize. No, not to, to earn my right, not to, to be right with God, but like a kid who knows their parents love them, but still deep down inside wants to have those moments where they do something where the parents go, I'm so proud of you. I mean, if you spend enough time with little kids, you'll realize, especially if you've got a crafting kid like mine, that like a couple hours in the bedroom and what comes out would not qualify for any uh, like entry into MoMA or into any museum of fine art. But what comes out is this act of love. And it's like, Daddy, I, I made you. And I was like, oh, I thought that was a T-Rex with a shriveled arm. Oh, that's, oh, I see me now. That's so lovely, sweetheart. I'm so glad my head's that small and my body's so big. I'm going to go to the gym. That's going to be my New Year's resolution now. Right? But like she brings it. That's an act of love. We, we um, play old school Mario in our house. And um, just like I came home last night and um, Jenny was like, oh, you would have been so proud of your daughter. And I said, why? She was like, she was playing Mario with me. And she was like, we're going to beat this stage. So when daddy comes home, he's going to be so proud of me. Now, my daughter knows that her love, my love for her is not predicated on what she can do on old school Mario. It's like, I'm sorry, sweetheart. You didn't beat the castle. Daddy doesn't love you. If only you'd have tried harder, I would have cared, right? No, in her little tiny heart of hearts, she's doing what all of us do. Like, look, I, for real, I know there are some of you in this room, some of you listening to my voice right now, you are in the middle portion of your life and you are still trying to get your parents' approval. So this isn't a kid thing. This is, an, this is a human thing. And God's intention wasn't that we would live our life so that we could get into heaven. It was because of what he's done and because the, the weight and the trust that we can have in what he's done for us that we just do in response to that. I don't do romantic things for my wife so that I can earn her love. I do it because I already have it. And I get to. I get to live for God. I get to do because at the core of my being, I desire one day when my blink on earth becomes my blink in heaven, that I hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I hear, well done, boy. Come on up here, my little all-star. I, I, I'm living for that. I've had enough moments around people who are taking their last breath to know that's the only thing worth living for. That everything else pales in comparison. 
And I would encourage you, for maybe some of you are here today and you're not really into the whole faith thing, but you kind of, you know, you've, you like some of this or maybe you hate the music. And I hated the music when I first started going to church, just to be real with you. I hated it. I thought it was so weird. I'm like, man, what's up with the rock concert? And it's like bad rock concert. At least here we have good rock concert. Right? I, I mean, I, I just I hated it. But I, I was the person who I remember listening to that night when I became a Christian had a biological background, and so it was like science, and so that was kind of my background. I come out of the biochem world, and so I was like, oh, this, at least he's interesting, right? So I get it, but here's my challenge for you, that before, but maybe 2020, that before you reject it, you just take a step and inspect it. Before you outright dismiss it, that you would dig into it. That maybe you have legitimate questions. And this year, make this the year that you get legitimate answers. Look, I, I just think that this why is worth looking into. And that maybe this year, all the questions that have always been the reason that you don't lean into this thing, all the reasons that you don't buy this, all the legitimate questions you have about other faiths and God and how do you know and Jesus and the whole cross thing, like all those really legitimate questions you have. But this year you dig into it instead of just dismissing it. I'd love to give you a book. I'll buy you a cup of coffee. Because the questions you probably have are the questions I wrestled with too. And I'd love to help you. And the best thing that happens is you get your answers. The worst thing would be that you get the answers and you're like, you discover Christianity is a big lie and you get to be the privilege of standing up and revealing to the world that you've discovered the whole Christian thing is a farce and the bald head guy driving his 2003 Buick LeSabre is just out of the money. So maybe you just get to confirm your deepest suspicion, which will be awesome. I'm sure the Globe would love to write about it. It may be your breakthrough into a new job opportunity. But I'm just saying before you reject it, you should inspect it. And before you dismiss it, you should dig into it. And that for all of us in this room, I don't have to know your story, but I do know that many of us came into this year and we wanted a better 2020. And it's, it's about time that we take control of our life. Instead of being readers of our own stories, how about 2020, we become the writers of our own story. Because if you want to, if you, if you keep doing the same thing year after year, you're going to keep getting the same thing year after year. And if you want to see something different this year, then you have to do something different. And so, what are you holding on to? That in reality is holding on to you. What are you holding on to? that's holding you back. And if you want to see better grow in 2020, then it starts with letting it go. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you're exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.